So I've been around uh, the college campus now for not just this campus, but college in general for about half my life, Um, off and on, but mostly on for the last 18 years or so. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, in that time, again, kind of with my arrival on campus and certainly through the modern uh, period today, is that colleges have really begun to sell the study abroad experience in a big way. They, it began, I think, in earnest kind of in my time at, uh, in college back in the late 90s, early 2000s. But as you all know, it's a, big, it's a big thing that gets talked about. If you're on a campus tour visiting TU and almost any other school that has a full kind of orb campus experience, they will talk about study abroad. Um, a lot of campuses have offices that are dedicated to this experience, much like TU has. Um, I will leave it to you to judge whether or not those offices uh, are as helpful as they could be. I've heard some stories. Um, I'll also leave it to you to tell me whether the university and the professors are as helpful as they could be in setting up all your classes and stuff. I know it can be frustrating, but nonetheless, schools are all about this. Now, if you've ever been to study abroad or if you're thinking about it or considering it, one thing that is absolutely true, which you know is true if you've already been, is that the degree to which you prepare for the trip, and not just prepare like buying visas and the plane tickets and all that sort of stuff, but prepare in terms of, of doing the research into the place, looking at the history of that country, you know, whether that's from the government, what kind of government does Spain have, and has it always been that way, and if it hasn't, how has that impacted that culture? Uh, what is what is there in South Africa? Like what what actually am I going to go see on those weekend adventures and those weekend trips? Is there a good place to ski or to surf in Chile? Is there right? Is there good food anywhere in Germany, or is it all sausages? Uh, like you do the research so that when you get there, it doesn't just help you to understand the lay of the land and what's happening there. It actually serves to help you deepen the experience. The book of Leviticus, as I've been suggesting for the last two weeks and will again tonight, uh, whether or not you are committed to Christianity or are still exploring it and kind of figuring it out, the book of Leviticus is that sort of historical background research thing for the claims of Christianity. It is... All of the background, it is the foundation on which Christianity is built. A lot of the stuff that we find here. And so, what I'm going to suggest is that if you ever want to not just understand Christianity, but if even one day to experience the fullness of what has been offered and made plain, and even accomplished for you in and through Jesus, you have to understand this book. And that's really why we're looking at it is I want you to have a full-orbed experience of what the gospel means and what it means for you. So we're going to read the next three, uh, not the full chapters, but selections from the next three chapters tonight, Leviticus 4 through 6. And here's the big question, the big thing I want to be driving to, is that God, uh, these chapters help us to see how it is that God thinks about sin And how it is that he sets forth what we do with that sin. Okay? So the last few weeks we talked about sacrifices from a couple other angles. Tonight is specifically the offerings of of sin and guilt. The sin and guilt offerings or the sin and guilt sacrifices. 
And we're going to see that tonight and talk about it. And I hope it is as captivating to you as it was to me in studying it. So let's look. Leviticus 4, starting in verse 1. And again, I'm only reading parts of these chapters. They are long. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and he does any of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip uh, his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, uh, fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all of the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. There it is again. Verse 10. Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. We're going to skip down to chapter 5. It says that if anyone sins... Uh, in that he hears a public adjuration to testify. And though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, skip down to verse 3, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, with which one becomes unclean, and is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him when he becomes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Down chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all these things the people do and and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took, by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that was found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and he shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. This is God's word. So, why spend a night talking about this? Because here's what's at stake. If you're ever going to commit to following Jesus consciously, long-term in the Christian life, This passage tells us, whether or not we understood it yet, this passage tells us that that there is a way to follow 
Christ. That there is a way to follow God and sin and have something done that makes you still okay with God. This is a passage about how, as a follower of Jesus, you can sin in an ongoing way, right? Not deliberately, not carelessly, but how a way has been made for you to sin and still be right with God. And that matters. Let's talk about how. The first is through this first category here of ever-present sin. Um, The first thing that happens is that in this passage, again, whether or not you understood it in all of its moving pieces, it's fine if you didn't. I certainly didn't before I spent a lot of time studying it. One of the things you're just overwhelmed by is there's just a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of different pieces to this. There's different situations. And when I say we just read a little bit of it, I mean we just read a little bit of it. There are all kinds of applications for this in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And it just gets into all these different things. And one of the, um, one of the things in that is we, just, we have to see that sin is everywhere. It's ever-present. Now, to even begin to know what to do with that, we kind of have to back up for just a second and say, well, what is sin? Like, what's going to qualify as sin? Uh, modern people in our days, uh, in our age and day, would, would characterize sin in one of these ways, and the slides are messed up behind me, we're going to give it a shot, kind of in these three categories. One is that sin is, is misfortune. And by that, I mean that, um, you know, people say things like, I haven't lived up to my own standards. Or I haven't been the person that I want to be. Or I've not been true to myself. And they'll see th- say things like that. Um, it, like the thing that I did was kind of a blip on the radar. It's really not who I am. Um, it's just this kind of temporary detour, but I'm heading on back on the right way. There's just this misfortunate thing that happened. Another way that, that people in our age understand this is that they think and talk of sin as sickness. Or that sin is a virus. That, that kind of that notion that we're affected by stuff out there and it makes its way in here. That the things that, that's wrong with us is because we're a product of this society that out there is messed up and then it's made its way in here. And, and maybe I'm a little messed up too, but, but I've kind of caught this thing. Sin is a sickness. Another way people talk about it is that sin um, is mismanagement. There's... Um, a line of thinking in here that goes like this, that, that sin is like an orchestra that is out of tune or that's out of sync. And that if we could just put enough time and energy and focus into it, then we could put it back together and figure it out. Now, this passage fills out, if, if that's our notion of sin, and there's certainly more ways we could talk about it and maybe ways that you think about it. But if that's our notion of it, this passage comes into that and and really fills out the picture of what sin is like from God's point of view. That if he's going to write the descriptors, um, it's going to say something a little different. So what I want to do is actually take those same three categories and affirm what we can affirm about those, but also shed more light on it in terms of how God sees it. So the first one right there, look at it again. Sin as misfortune. Um, it is attractive. It's attractive to talk about sin as, you know, me not being true to myself, or I haven't lived up to my values or my standards. And and the reason that that's attractive is that if I can 
couch sin, if I can describe sin primarily in reference to me, and that the primary person that is suffering from my thing that I've done, if that's primarily me, then a couple things happen. I can let myself off the hook, and I don't have to go apologize to anybody else. It's really not about them. It's just more about me. I can forgive myself quickly, or in the case, maybe not, I don't forgive myself quickly, but I'm in control. That's the big thing there. And another thing it does is it allows you to escape the thing that people have been trying to escape for eons, that that existential feeling of, I just feel kind of dirty. But if I can be the one who's making myself feel dirty, then I can bring myself out of this by just not feeling dirty. And usually that takes the form of entertainment or going just doing something that makes me feel good or buying a new shirt or any number of things. I can kind of appease that guilty conscience thing. And that's attractive. The, the problem with that, and there's quite a few, is that that's just thoroughly unbiblical. <laughs> That's just not how the Bible talks about and thinks about and conceptualizes sin. And we see this in this passage in some very specific ways. I'm going to talk about a couple of them. Look in, a, look in verse, chapter 4, verse 2 right there. It says that if anyone sins in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, and he goes on and talks about this, but let's just stop there. Two things. It says that the Lord has commanded things which are not to be done. And we didn't even go into all those things, but it just comes out and says, if anyone sins in those things that the Lord commands not to be done. Here's what that means. That God has revealed a standard out there, and it's not us. A self-referential standard isn't real. It's hypothetical. It's a standard of your own imagination, And to the degree to which we're living by kind of our own life standard is to the degree that you are your own God. Which I get it. It's attractive. It's just not redemptive. The second thing we see in here is that that sin is... Sorry, I'm going to go back. That sin is an objective reality. That sin is an objective reality. Uh, Notice right in there that passage in 4.2, it just starts to say in, in... Six times through Leviticus 4 and 5 is this word unintentional. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. But one big thing that that means is that whether or not you ever have this subjective experience of sin, like whether or not you really consciously or not do it, there is this category that it's still wrong. Even if it wasn't a sheer act of volition or defiance, There is such thing as unintentional sin, which again just points to this reality that there is an objective standard out there that exists which has nothing to do with your personal experience. It's there because God has put it there. There's an objective reality to sin. The second thing modern people talk about sin is sickness. Now, I want to be a little more nuanced in this one. And here's why. Because sin is nuanced. Sin itself is nuanced, and it's nuanced in this, packet, in this passage. So, let me affirm this. Sin is a sickness 
that affects and infects all of us and other people out there without their complicitness in it at all. Now, let me just make that very clear. That means that there will be things that people do, sinful things, mean things, evil things that others do that will affect you, and you had nothing to do with that. I mentioned it last week. Some of you are the products of divorce. And within divorce, there's all kinds of things that lead to that, but at some level there's sin going on, whether that be selfishness or more far-fetched and far-reaching things than that. And you have been affected by that at a deep level. And you honestly had nothing to do with it. So sin is a sickness that's out there in the world that we catch, and we also have to realize that we are doing things that hurt others. So we're part of the problem too, but it's out there. Let's just give a category for that. Some of you have had things done to you that wasn't your fault, and it is affecting you at massively profound and deep levels. The Bible acknowledges that. But sin is sickness in a different way also. Sin is a sickness in in, in that we knowingly and willingly can acknowledge that there there are situations and places and relationships and people that are harmful to us or they will be harmful to us or they might be harmful to us. And we just willingly go toward them and say, I'm going to do that. That looks fun. He's hot. She's good. Like, I'm moving that way with full knowledge that that is going to probably harm me in some way. And what that shows us about sickness and sin is that that that's from within. That stuff is just in there. You didn't have to be taught that. And here's how we know this is true. Every parent who's ever had a child, which is the definition of being a parent, uh, at about seven months old, said child, we're in the, we specialized in girls, so talk about girls. Every seven-month-old girl at some point will start crawling and will get curious about these electrical plates on the wall. And she will make her first move toward them that we see, and we freak out. No, no, don't. Or we may push her hand away or whatever, and she'll cry, and it'll be awful, and we'll feel bad because she's crying. But here's what happens moments later, if not in the next few days, is that we will again see her moving toward that electric outlet, except this time it looks like this. She's making sure we see her. It's defiance. We didn't teach them that. It's from within. It's just there. It's not caught. It's not taught. It just is. And that's, that's what the Bible calls original sin. It's in all of us on this side of the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. We are more than just a product of our culture and, and the village that raised us. We haven't just caught their sickness. We bring our own sickness to the village. So sin is sickness. Now, this actually requires a little bit of nuancing in and of itself. This kind of idea of sin and sickness. And the first one here I want to say is that, again, this passage gives categories for unintentional sins. Six times it's in there. Now, maybe you've heard the phrase that goes something like this. Well, God looks at all sin the same. I just want to tell you tonight, that's not entirely true. 
That is not entirely true. And here's how we know that. Uh, Yes, all sin and each sin in its particular makes us culpable to God because He is the standard. Right? So any sin is an offense to God. In that way, sin is all alike. It's all primarily against Him. But it doesn't mean that God sees all sins the same way. In the book of Leviticus, there are two main categories for sin, unintentional and intentional, and we'll get to intentional later on. But right here, this is talking about unintentional in clarity. Chapter 5, verse 1, if you look down right there, it describes one of these. It says a situation where someone fails to testify at a trial. Like that wasn't a premeditated thing. That wasn't just like fully consciously walking in headlong to this thing that I know is sinful. It's just this kind of nuanced little situation that wasn't arguably the worst thing in the world. It's, it's what we might call a lapse of judgment. Right? Our laws reflect things like this. There is such thing as murder, and then there's such thing as premeditated murder. And the premeditated one carries a greater consequence. The Bible nuances these things also. Saying there are different ways to look at this stuff. The unintentional nature of sin, this is important. The the unintentional nature of sin is not so much our, our lack of intention toward the act, but rather a lack of attention in reference to God. So it's not so much that I really meant to do this thing, which is awful or not so awful. It's that I just really didn't even think about, think that God would care. I just wasn't even thinking about God. That's the offense, is that we just don't think about God that much. Think about it this way. Um, I'll pick on the guys for a second because that's always easy. Uh, Guys, in in several years, a number of you will be married, presumably. And uh, imagine it's the end of a work week. And it's been a hard week at work, and uh, you're excited that day. You and some buddies have been on group chat uh, at your computers instead of doing work. And you're, you're talking about coming over and eating some pizza and watching the game or watching the action movie or whatever it is. And you're getting excited, and there's emojis going back and forth, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> right? So, so you set this night up, and you get home from work that day, and you're kind of peppy. You're, you're feeling it. And your wife sprawled out on the couch in her, in her like, lounge clothes. She's also had a hard week at work. And you, you tell her, hey, babe, um, here in about 30 minutes, six guys are coming over, and we're going to watch movies and eat pizza. And she's going to look at you and say what? <laughs> Any number of things, fill in the blank. <laughs> but the sentiment of all of those things will be this. Shouldn't you have asked me? Like, shouldn't you have seen if that was okay with me? And in that moment, you'll realize your stupidity, uh, as I've done time and time and time again. And you'll apologize on the list. Now, what's the issue here? Is the issue that having guys over and, and eating pizza and watching movies is so wrong in and of itself? No, the issue is that you just didn't think about your wife. You're living your life without reference to the person that you say that you love and you're in relationship with. And in the Bible, that's called sin. So sin is any sort of of disorderedness to God's order in the world. It's anywhere that we do something 
that disrupts the peace that he has sought to bring in this world, in our own lives and in our communities and our families and all of this. And if we're ever going to have a real relationship with God, even those seemingly insignificant breaches have to be accounted for. Third thing in this, uh, the, or the next little nuance in this, sorry. The Bible gives one more kind of category for this. And it is talked about later in the book of Numbers, actually. We'll get at it a little bit later this semester. But in the book of Numbers, it very clearly calls this high-handed sin. Now, that's a kind of an old way to talk about it. But high-handed sin is the idea that uh, I know that this is wrong. And I'm walking right toward it, knowing this is defiant. It's like giving God the middle finger and saying, I just don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. And the Bible has a whole separate category for this. God treats this sort of sin more seriously. He just does because, as is kind of obvious, it's a greater offense. If I, in that situation, were to look at my wife, or, sorry, if you were to look at your future wife and say, hey, uh, I don't care what you say, guys are coming over, and that's just the way it's going to be. You might want to go back to the bedroom if you're going to be wearing that. Now, (laughs) everything just changed, right? It's the same way with God. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about this very thing when he's talking about church discipline. He's saying, look, if some of you are sinning intentionally, take them out of the church. They're acting as an unbeliever. It's got serious consequence. Third thing right there, sin is mismanagement. Really quick on this. Yes, the orchestra is out of sync. That's true. Sin disrupts our own lives. It disrupts our lives and relationship with others. But it's more than that. It's as if we're looking at the conductor saying, I hate your score. I hate your management of us. I would do better if I were in your place. And any amount of of you trying to get your life together and put it back together doesn't, doesn't write that offense. It's that we hate someone else telling us what to do. So the main point in all of this is sin is complex and it's also pervasive. And as God's people in that time would just see this never-ending plume of smoke coming up from the altar, they would walk away with at least this reality, that sin is ever-present in this camp. It's affecting me and it's affecting my friends and my family in a way I never thought. Secondly, real-life repentance. This one's a lot shorter, in which they say amen. I want you to notice that in each of these situations, the offender was required to openly confess and make amends what he, she, or they, and those are some of the passages we didn't read, what they had done. It's just this open thing. They had the process of confession and making amends is called repentance. Repentance is both acknowledging what you've done and doing whatever's necessary to make it right. Now imagine in that day the courage and the emotional and physical toil involved in dragging that animal across the camp to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting for your offering. Imagine what that would have felt like. It would, you can't hide that. It's like you're dragging a bull. Or you've got birds coming out of your pockets. Or you've got flour on your hands as you walk over. There's just no hiding it. And in fact, it would be kind of funny if you tried to hide it. You're like, oh, no, those aren't birds. That's just my wrists. They're really happy. Um, 
you like put a, a sheep inside your cloak or I don't know how you hide a bull. Like whatever it is you're trying to do to cover up for it, it's just not working. Some of y'all need to realize that your attempts at trying to cover up and hide the things that you're doing and have done, though it doesn't look as physically funny as that, it's just not working. And the awkward dance that you're trying to maneuver to get through life and to fool your friends over here and to try to maintain this image over here and to do this thing over here so that everyone thinks you're actually not the person who you actually are, it's awkward. And you're not tricking anyone. So what do we do about that? Well, my my suggestion and my hope for you is that you'd begin to bring that thing out into the open. Not the open in the middle of campus, no. But the openness in the midst of trusted friends. People in a small group with RUF or other Christian friends you may have or just other friends in general who you really trust. Like... That, is, that doesn't make you weird. That makes you human to acknowledge that you've got stuff. Another thing we see in, in repentance is in chapter 6. Look at how God lays down this principle of restitution. When something was stolen or ruined, you paid all of that back plus a fifth, plus 20%. And what's he getting at here is that our sin is costly. And I mentioned that last week. But further, when it affects others, we are to go above and beyond in making it right. We're to make amends for it. And so let me just ask you, are there any costs to your sin? Is there anything that you're doing kind of over and above to take care of the damage and and the shrapnel that has gone out from what you've done? And look, y'all, this wasn't just punitive, like God is just punishing them and saying, yeah, just so you can feel it. It's so that you would walk away from that and say, ah, that hurt. That, that, That cost me something. And it's meant to change you. That very act was meant to make you think, I don't think I'm going to do that again. That's part of repentance. Some of us Here's a weird way that works out. Some of us avoid closeness in relationships because we are well aware, we are well aware that we're going to hurt people. And because we know we're going to hurt people and that that would require hard conversations and this restitution thing where we have to go make things right, because we just know that we would hurt people, we hide and we stay private. And we think that no one gets hurt. But let me tell you, the one who's getting hurt may not be them, but it is certainly you. Because though you're not having to make amends out there and and restore whatever you've stolen or whatever you've hurt out there, whether through gossip or whatever it is, the person who's dying is you because you're lonely. Relationships aren't an option for us. They are difficult, yes, but they're not an option in the sense of like, I'll be fine without them. That's never true. Without them, you will sit in silence and you will sit in loneliness and you will wonder if anyone loves you at all. And I know that's true because you tell me it is. And I want to tell you that it's kind of as holy as it sounds for you to say you don't want to hurt others. I want to call your bluff on that just a little bit. And I want to say the thing that you're actually, the person you're actually trying to protect is you. 
You're not trying to actually protect them from being hurt. You're trying to protect you from either being hurt or having to do a hard thing. And that's live in a real-life relationship where you will inevitably fail each other. And consequently, this is, some of, this is one of the reasons why some of you are terrified at the prospect of getting married. Because you've seen your parents hurt each other and you say, I don't want anything to do with that. You've seen guys and girls around you do and say things to one another. You, you've just decided, I'm not, I can't do that. And so we say it's in the name of not hurting others, but it's actually because we're trying to protect ourselves. You don't want to bear the cost of restitution, whether that's in giving someone else something or in actually having to pay the cost for yourself. Repentance is hard. It's hard. But it's the way to life. It's the way to restored relationship. It is the way forward, not only with God, but with one another. And so it's involved... And we see it in the passage, and lastly, and really, I think most importantly and beautifully, we see this unexpected grace of God. Look, we get overwhelmed by the massiveness of sin and talking about repentance, and those aren't really fun things to talk about. I get it. But inasmuch as we're overwhelmed by that, what I want us to be even more overwhelmed by is the way that God has met His people at every step of the way Ahead of, ahead of time. He's one step ahead. He would deal with the offenses to him and has dealt with them more than we've ever even thought about them. All the little nuances and crevices and ways that this stuff is put together, it's all meant to say this one thing, that God cares about the restored relationship with you more than you've ever thought about your need to be restored to him. He is giving provision for your unintentional sin that you didn't even know was sin. And he says, it actually is sin, but I've done something for that too. So imagine, imagine that you were back then and you were a a Levite or an Israelite and you had come out of slavery and this God had delivered you miraculously and, and you don't really know everything about him. You've seen some cool things and heard some cool things. You're just like, what is he like? And imagine you've done this thing that you don't even know what to do with it, but you kind of feel guilty about it. And then you open up the Bible, you open up the law, and you read that, oh, God has told me what to do about it. I take these animals over here and I do this. Or I take this offering of flour and do that. How kind of God to have thought of that. And I can't help but think, to see God in that light, that He he is one step ahead of your sin in His grace. That he is outgracing your sin has to make you think, man, that's a view of, of God that loves me. But not just loves me, he knows me. He knows what I did last weekend, and he's already provided the means by which I can be forgiven. He knows how I didn't leave my room because I was so ashamed of who I am that I hate others. But even more than that, I hate myself. And he's taken care of that. And, and maybe, just maybe, if he knows me all the way down and he's taken care of it, maybe that actually means that he loves me. As I was looking at this, I thought of a, a book that we read for our little girls. It's this book. It says, Guess How Much I Love You. And it's a story about little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair. And it goes like this. I'll let you read the picture, see the pictures. Little nut brown hair who was going to bed held on tight to big nut brown hair's very long ears. And he wanted to be sure that big nut brown hair was listening. Guess how much I love you, he said. Oh, I don't think I could guess that, said big nut brown hair. 
This much, said little nut brown hair, stretching out his arms as wide as they could go. Big nut brown hair had, had even longer arms. But I love you this much, he said. Hmm, that is a lot, thought little nut brown hair. I love you as high as I can reach, said little nut brown hair. I love you as high as I can reach, said big nut brown hair. That is very high, thought little nut brown hair. I wish I had arms like that. He didn't because he's small. Are y'all catching up with this? Okay. Then little nut brown hair had a good idea. He tumbled upside down and reached up the tree trunk with his feet. I love you all the way up to my toes, he said. And I love you all the way up to your toes, said big nut brown hair, swinging him up up over his his head. Words. I love you as high as I can hop, laughed little nut brown hair, bouncing up and down. But I love you as high as I can hop, smiled big nut brown hair, as he hopped so high that his ears touched the branches above. Can you believe that? (laughs) That's good hopping, thought little nut brown hair. I wish I could hop like that. I love you all the way down the lane, as far as the river, cried little nut brown hair. I love you across the river and over the hills, the hills, said big nut brown hair. That's very far, thought little nut brown hair. He was almost too sleepy to think anymore. Then he looked beyond the thorn bushes out into the big dark night. Nothing could be farther than the sky. I love you right up to the moon, he said as he closed his eyes. Oh, that's far, said big nut brown hair. That is very, very far. Big nut brown hair settled little, little nut brown hair into his bed of leaves. He leaned over and kissed him goodnight. Then he lay down close by and whispered with a smile, I love you right up to the moon and back. Do you love God? Some of you, yes. Some of you, no. Some of you, I don't know. I'm telling you, he said, I've loved you all the way down and back. I've known everything about you. I see it all. I see all the sin. I see all your efforts at trying to change. I have forgiven that. Look at how much I love you. I came to be with you. I know you. I know your situation. I know your temptation. I know your struggle. I know your sin. Look, I've entered into your world. And I've taken it on myself. Listen to how the author of Hebrews says this, and then we'll close. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Old Testament sacrifices, they never actually took away sin. They were a provision by which people could have their sins forgiven in that time. But the only sacrifice that fully and finally took away sin was the sacrifice of Jesus. And he went and did that for you because he loves you. All the way down and back. There's nothing you can do to out His grace and His love. And He's offered to you tonight, every week, every day, every moment, Jesus is for you. Do you love Him? Let's pray.